Well, once more, good morning. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a pleasure to be here and a joy to be preaching God's word to you. If you are new, whether you're online or visiting, we are working through this series in the book of Colossians. It's a short book in the New Testament, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Colossians. Uh, it is sandwiched between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians, I believe. We're going to find ourselves in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And so while you open or load your Bible, I have a couple of uh, uh, updates for you. I'll be uh, very brief about them because we have a large portion of Scripture to to walk through together this morning. Uh, The first one is that if you are in need of a Bible, if you do not have a Bible, we would love to hook you up with a Bible, whether it is so that you would follow along this morning or for you to take. There should be some on the chairs as well as the Connect table. That is our gift to you, so please take one. Uh, If you already got one, take one anyway and hook someone up with it. In addition to that, uh, if you'd love to learn more about you, we'd love to, or excuse me, if you'd love to learn more about us, we would love to hang out with you. On the chairs as well, I believe there are these connect cards. This is where we can answer questions for you about us. This is where we can pray for you and get to know you a little bit better. Fill one out, drop it in the, uh, I think it's the offering uh, box or the connect table, and uh, one of our staff members will, will, will respond to you within 24 hours. And finally, after service this morning, we're going to be having our our spring membership class. Uh, Last week, we experienced some glitch on our website, and so we're not really sure how many people have registered. And so if you did register, wonderful. Can't wait to see you later this afternoon. If you did not register or you would like to jump in anyway, I would encourage you to, to come and join us so that you would learn more about our story, certainly what we believe, and uh, where God uh, is leading us here in McAllen. It's free 99, and you get lunch. So um, hope to see you there this afternoon. That's all I have for us. Oh, I I have one more thing. Okay, so last week or the week before, I'm sure you uh, heard, saw, or someone screenshotted it, Uh, It was Governor Abbott's uh, mask update, and so we've already had a couple of people ask, so what are we going to do as a church? As of right now, nothing is changing. Here is why. We are a tenant of of the incubator, which is run by the Chamber of Commerce, which is still overseen by the city of McAllen. This is still a city building, and so until we receive updates from them and see how the chamber responds, then we will update you. Uh, if anything changes on the whole mask jazz. So you don't like it, uh, go to the city. Um, anyway, with that being said, um, man, I just want to preach Jesus. So, so let's dive into our time together. Uh, once more, we're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. I'm really excited about this passage, and I hope you see why in just a moment. Um, Have you ever been engaged in a conversation where a topic was mentioned, and one of you uh, became absolutely passionate about that topic? Maybe it is in the great debate centered around tacos in the RGV versus tacos in Austin and you have some friends who are from the valley and lost their identity as they moved to Austin, and now they think Paco's Tacos are real, right? Perhaps um, it's regarding the 
the passionate debate of, and I'm, I'll butcher this, but I, I get to hear some of it from y'all. Uh, it's the passionate debate surrounding the Dallas Cowboys and previous victories and how athletic people from the 90s were compared to teams today and their victories. Uh, maybe you like to center or surround yourself around that conversation, or when the conversation does come up, it tends to be very, very passionate. I hear that among Cowboys fans, uh, I hear a similar conversation from uh, one of our staff members, Nathaniel, when it comes to Indiana and Michigan. I know nothing about them other than it's important to those people, right? And maybe it's none of those. Perhaps it's the conversations surrounding political topics online that stir your heart and your mind with all sorts of ungodly affections, and you can't help but comment or repost with a comment, masks or no masks, vaccine or no vaccine, the current presidency versus previous presidencies. Certain topics trigger people in different ways. Let me lessen it a little bit. You can already feel the tension. Have you ever watched The Sandlot? Anybody? Yeah. There's a scene where one of the main characters, his name is Smalls. If you've ever watched The Sandlot, you know who I'm talking about. And Smalls really wants to hang out with his friends. And they run out of baseballs to play with. And in case you've never watched The Sandlot, it's a movie about baseball. And so at one point, they run out of baseballs to play with because the field where they play, there's this big fence. And behind the fence is the beast. And the beast is this massive dog that, that takes all of the baseballs and keeps them from the kids so that they can't play. And Smalls, who is new to this town and new to the team and new to these friendships, wants to impress his friends. And so his stepdad is a big baseball fan and he sees this baseball on his dad's uh, desk and he takes it and they play with it. And it is a baseball that was signed by Babe Ruth. And during one of the games, you know, they hit the ball. I don't know what the technical term is. They hit the ball over the fence. The beast takes the ball, keeps it. And all of the friends gang up around Smalls. And they said, I can't believe you would play with a ball signed by Babe Ruth. And then they echo out, yeah, I can't believe it, Smalls. You're playing with a ball by, that was signed by the one and only Babe Ruth. And Smalls' response was, yeah, you keep saying that name, but I don't know who she is. <laughs> and the response of the team is their mouths, their jaw, their jaw drops. They are surprised, almost offended, and they become very passionate about Babe Ruth, asking, how could you not know who Babe Ruth is? And then all the nicknames come along. The Great Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Clash, the Colossus of Clout. And he's just dumbfounded. Like, I get what you mean, but I don't get what you mean. Certain topics trigger passion in people. 
And in the same vein, it is the thought or the topic of Christ's redemption that he has transferred us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son that triggers the apostle Paul to enter into this passionate praise of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Verses 15 to 23 are part hymn, part poem, part passion, but all Christ. In a moment, you will see <clears throat> Paul expand upon who Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. We will see in the opening verses of this beautiful hymn that Jesus is this, Jesus is that, he has done, he is. Paul continues and continues. In the opening verses, Paul begins with the supremacy of Christ, and he takes us all the way through the suffering of Christ. And here in this text, I believe it simply inspires praise. If you're looking for the practical application, as I know many of you are, then it is praise. Praise of the Lord Jesus. This, this text teaches us that the supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. The supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. So let me read this passage and then I'll pray and we will continue in our time together. Colossians 1 beginning in verse 15. Here's what God says through the Apostle Paul. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, excuse me, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you to examine your word, Father, in this time, would you continue to reveal yourself to us so that our eyes would be fixed upon Jesus Father, would you do a work in us through your spirit so that we would continue to be transformed for the purpose of praising Jesus? Would you give us clarity 
was so that we would ultimately praise Jesus as the apostle does in this text. May we be humble before you as we look at your word. May you penetrate and discern the intentions of our heart with your word. And would you compel us to to direct our attention to your word as you reveal yourself to us. We ask this in Christ Jesus. Amen. So in this big portion of scripture, we're going to break it down or we're going to break it up into two parts. We're going to break it up into the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And we're going to look at this text from a very high point because we can look at, for instance, verses 15 to 20 and spend six weeks, if not more, on that text. So we're going to look at this from a 50,000 foot view while at the same time being as specific as we can through what the apostle is saying to the Colossians. In this opening, uh, or in the opening verses, which is 15 to 17, this is the supremacy of Christ. The apostle Paul provides us with his supremacy. That is, Paul is going to give us a very high view of who Christ is. One pastor theologian says it this way, that the apostle Paul provides us with the Christ of the cosmos and takes us all the way to the Christ of of the cross. In this brief section of verses 15 to 17, here's the bottom line. If we desire to know or to learn more about God in our walk, then we must look to Jesus. Paul begins in verse 15 by saying, he is the image of the invisible God. If you remember, uh, Genesis tells us that we are created in God's image. That is, that we reflect some of his attributes. However, at best we are limited, and sadly, at worst, we are corrupted by our sin nature. Here in verse 15, Paul is saying that Jesus is the image of God. That Jesus is the only satisfactory likeness of God. That not only does he perfectly and accurately reflect and display that which is invisible, but that in Christ Jesus is the very nature of God. The author of Hebrews says it this way, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In short, if we want to know God, we must look to Jesus. Jesus answers the question, what is God like? In John 14, as Jesus is hanging with the disciples, Philip asks him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus replies saying, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Later on in history, the French theologian John Calvin says this, in Christ, God shows us his righteousness 
His goodness, wisdom, power, in short, His entire self. We must, therefore, beware of seeking Him elsewhere. For everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. If we want to know God, then we must look to Jesus, for He is the very nature of God. Additionally, in this verse, the Apostle Paul says that He is the firstborn. The word firstborn is important particularly because Paul says it twice in this section, and they have two meanings, one at the beginning, one in the later text as we will see. One pertains to the order in time, while the other references or means rank or status. And so, for instance, I am one of four boys. I am the youngest, therefore I am not the firstborn. My brother Mehmet is. That is order of time. That is not what Paul is talking about in this first section. In this first section, Paul is referring to Jesus's status or rank, that not only does he proceed over time, but that his title is one of supremacy. Christ is supreme over everything, over creation. The psalmist expands on this word firstborn in Psalm 89, 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This word in this first verse implies status or rank, that he has supremacy over all. He is over all. He is sovereign over all. Additionally, as we continue in verse 16, Paul goes on to say, for him, and later on he says, through him, and then again he says, for him, or excuse me, for by him, through him, and for him. Prepositions in verse 16, we're going back to English class, prepositions in verse 16 are incredibly important. They are the key in this passage because these prepositions lead us to praise God and they lead us to know Christ more. So for instance, when Paul says, for by him all things were created, what Paul is saying is that Jesus was the origin or cause of creation. As he concludes in this verse, he says, through him, that is, in that Jesus was the mediating agent through whom creation actually came into being. And he closes with for him, saying that in Jesus, or excuse me, in that Jesus is the end goal of creation, that all things were meant to serve his will and for his glory. The supremacy of Christ is shown, now as we've broken those prepositions down briefly, the supremacy of Christ is shown particularly over thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Many commentators and theologians believe that these titles are references to angels, demons, or evil forces. 
And where they draw this conclusion from is in the following chapter, in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what Paul tells the Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. That is why he's writing to them, that there is a teaching that is contrary uh, to the sufficiency of Christ. And so he's saying, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So whatever the teaching was, if you go back three weeks ago, we were unpacking the purpose of Colossians. If you go back three weeks ago, while we don't necessarily know specifically what the teaching was in Colossae, what we do know is that it was contrary to the sufficiency of Christ, which is why Paul is writing to them. Here, we go back to verse 16, Paul does not go into details about thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Nevertheless, here is what you and I need to know that it is the supremacy of Christ that shows us that he is supreme, sovereign, and over them, meaning you don't have to fear them. You do not have to fear thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities because he is completely supreme, sovereign over them. In this section, Paul has told us that if we desire to know God, then we must turn to Jesus. Therefore, by that logic, Jesus makes a practical difference in our lives when we realize his supremacy. While evil forces exist and our sin is present, we can turn to Christ we can trust him. We can enter the valley of the shadow of death knowing that Christ is with us. It is knowing, that, it is knowing Christ that allows us to go into hard places, do hard things, and endure all things. Christ is supreme over all creation. Those titles are merely that, titles in addition to that, simply because of their titles, they take no position over creation because Christ is supreme over all creation. Verse 17, Paul tells us about his sovereignty. Verse 17, he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, God didn't create our world and us only to bounce. But that in Christ, all things are sustained. Deities don't sustain us. Idols don't sustain us. It is Christ that sustains us. Particularly in the context of Colossians and in the pagan uh, worldview or pagan religion, no one knew who was sustaining everything. Therefore, those who worshiped false gods and false idols, what they would do is attribute human characteristics to their gods. But at the end of the day, they still had no clue who was sustaining everything. If we travel back to the Old Testament uh, in 1 Kings 18, this is on your notes, it might be on the screen. In 1 Kings 18, we see Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal. And he is asking them, call on your God. And then he doesn't respond. And he says, well, he's probably in the bathroom 
Or maybe he's asleep. Or perhaps he went on vacation. That's why he doesn't answer. You can read that in 1 Kings 18.25. We can look at that and say, yeah, well, that's the Old Testament. We can look at God's sovereignty in this chapter and say, well, yeah, that was during the first century with the Colossians. Those are pagan religions. But we're not too different. We're not too different. That we can succumb to idols or deities who we believe are ultimately going to sustain us. But the truth is that they won't. Because not only are they merely created, they are not creator. And it is the creator who is sovereign over all, who sustains all. The question might even be, what about disaster and destruction? And clearly we know that they occur and that it happens, and they are limited. Why doesn't everything fall off the hinges? It is because Christ holds all things together. If the Christ of the cosmos can sustain all things, then he can surely sustain you in your chaos. It is the sovereignty of God that leads us and provides us with hope. This is John Piper on the sovereignty of God. Some of you may have heard of him. Here's what he says. The sovereignty of God does not make the pursuit of sinners pointless. It makes it hopeful. Nothing in man can stop this sovereign God from saving the worst of sinners. The sovereignty of God leads us to praise, leads us to worship, leads us to hope. The sovereignty of God leads us to know of his supremacy. So here's the bottom line in this section. Paul doesn't just tell us of the reality of Jesus, but the supremacy of Jesus. And this matters because some of you may only have a perception of Jesus. Maybe you have only an idea of Jesus, a concept of who Jesus is, a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Maybe you approach God like you approach or like we would approach a buffet. I'm going to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I enjoy this, but not that about him. And so you construct your own Jesus. That is a false perception of Christ. And Paul tells us here, it is the supremacy of Christ that provides us with clarity of who God is. And so I ask you, how do you perceive God? Do you, Christian, turn to Christ so that you would have a clear understanding of who God is? Do you turn to other things because Jesus isn't as sufficient or Jesus doesn't have the kind of answers you're looking for? Therefore, you turn to other things and at the end of the day, even though it is caked in Christianese, you are really just approaching the supremacy of Christ like a buffet. I like this about him, but I don't like this about him. I like that about him, but I don't like this about him. Therefore, your understanding is unbiblical, misunderstood, unclear. And the irony is you find yourself still asking why. Because at no point did we actually turn to Christ to know God.
It is the supremacy of Christ that provides us with the clarity of God, not a perception of him. Verse 18, now we come to the sufficiency of Christ. See, in verses 15 to 17, we looked at this high view of the supremacy of Christ, that he is the image of God, the very nature of God, that he is over all creation, and that he is sovereign over all, sustaining everything. In fact, briefly, uh, Hebrews 1, I mentioned it earlier, in Hebrews 1, the writer says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so now we come to the sufficiency of Christ. And in verses 18 to 23, Paul will unpack this in two contexts. The means by which sinners are reconciled and then reconciliation applied personally. That's a lot. We'll walk through it slowly. In brief, reconciliation through Christ provides us with hope. So let's go. Before digging into reconciliation, as Paul usually does, he gives us a preface, and that is the new creation. That is the church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So the first thing Paul wants us to know is that there is a new creation through Christ, and this new creation is the church. That in our rebellion, God did not leave us to ourselves, but sent his son on a rescue mission to save sinners whom he would fold into the story and plan of redemption. This is his church. Paul says that Christ is the head of the church. That is, that as the head, he provides her with vital nutrition to, go, uh, to grow, that she is sustained by him and transformed through him. The church is governed by Christ. He is the chief, the senior pastor, el mero mero. He is at the top. He is the head of the church. He continues to say that the church is the body, that not only are we intimately connected and sustained by Christ, but the church carries out his purpose on earth. If one were to ask, why is Christ the head of the church? Paul tells us in the same verse. Paul tells us because he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Some of you come from the Roman Catholic faith and tradition, and you may have been taught that the Pope sits as the head of the church, that his Latin title is Vicarious Christi, which means Christ on earth. Paul smashes that theology in this verse. Why is Christ the head of the church? Because Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here's that word, firstborn. Now he's talking about precedence in time. This refers to his position in time. That Christ is the first to resurrect from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the beginning. That in his resurrection... He conquered sin, Satan, hell, and demons. 
And what is true of Christ is true of his church. Very briefly, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ. That Christ has resurrected from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit, and as He has conquered sin, Satan, hell, and demons, He can do the same for you through the same Holy Spirit, bringing you from spiritual death to spiritual life in Him. Verse 3, He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That you've been given a new life. That the Christian has been given a new heart with a new mind and new desires. And all of this was made possible through his resurrection because he is the firstborn from the dead. And so at this point, Paul paints us this, this, this image of the new creation so that you and I would better understand reconciliation. And as we come into verses 19 to 20, we're going to see this, again, another 100,000 foot view. He's going to give us cosmic reconciliation, right? And then as we travel into verse 21 through 23, he's going to apply that reconciliation to you, church, personally. And so let's, let's go. Verse 19, Paul says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'd like to break down being reconciled, making peace, and then finally his blood. The church as a new creation is made possible through Christ reconciling us to himself. And so when you see the word reconcile, it means to be restored back into right relationship. And so when you hear that the Christian has been reconciled to the Father, that language is one of uh, relationship, but that language is also made possible because of Christ's activity. And what was his activity? That it is by his blood on the cross that allowed us to be reconciled to the Father, that allowed us to be restored back into right relationship with the Father. And what, is it, what does it ultimately do? It makes peace. That reconciliation restores us into a relationship between us and God. But it doesn't stop there. He says all things. Primarily, reconciliation restores us to a right relationship with God, but it also restores us to a relationship with one another. See, this is the one that I think Christians we forget about. That it restores us into relationship with one another. Additionally, again, he's saying all things. That his work on the cross by his blood reconciles us to our environment. That is, that we are no longer owners, but stewards. Everything that we have been given, we have been entrusted with by him. So our hearts have been changed. Jesus' blood was the currency that was used 
to qualify us. Last week, when we looked at, at uh, verses, I think it was 13 to 14, he says that we are giving thanks to the Father who qualified us. It wasn't that we were awesome. It is that Christ himself qualified us. He redeemed us. He was the one to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And how does God reconcile all things? He reconciles all things through Christ that he restores us back into right relationship with God, that he makes peace, that is that we are reconciled to the Father, but we're also reconciled to one another, that we are now stewards of what he has entrusted us with, and this is made possible through his blood, the currency that was used to redeem us, restore us, and reconcile us. And so that's that high view of reconciliation. And so now Paul transitions into this personal view of reconciliation. And he does so brilliantly. Because in verses 15 to 20, Paul is saying, Jesus is this and Jesus is that. He has done this and he is doing that. And look at verse 21. He starts by saying, and you. So now he's making it personal. And you. You who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Church, Christ reconciles you to the Father. Christ has reconciled you to be in his church, his new creation. Paul reminds us of this by taking us to who we were apart from Christ that we were alienated. That is, that we were estranged from God. We were not friends. We were enemies. He says that we were hostile, unable to please God, and that we were doing evil deeds. That is, that we were in rebellion against God. But God in Christ has reconciled you to the Father. That Christ came down to reconcile you to Him we didn't reach up. And as a result, Christ now presents you as holy, that is, set apart. He presents you blameless, free of guilt and sin. He presents you above reproach, free from accusation. So when you are presented before the Father, you are presented because of Christ's work for you. And Paul continues, if indeed you continue in the faith. In its original language, in this verse, it is as if Paul is saying, keep going. It's not like a threat or, or he's checking him. He's telling him, keep going. The reason he's telling him to keep going is because true faith is a persevering faith. There's just no way around that. True faith, genuine faith, is a persevering faith. So Christian, please, don't take your status as reconciled for granted. 
When Paul tells them to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, that's language from two weeks ago, he's encouraging them to stand firmly rooted in their faith. Firmly rooted in their foundation. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. In Christ church, our greatest need is met. And through Christ, we see that he is sufficient. He is enough, not Christ and something else. When we read through the Bible, we see people groups or cultures worshiping other gods, and yet we mock them, yet we are not so different. The sufficiency of Christ is greater than your idols. So church, what is it that you hold to? What does your foundation actually look like? Consider that today, not tomorrow and not after lunch. Consider that now. What does your foundation actually actually look like because i guarantee you if you have a perception of god rather than the reality of his supremacy your foundation is weak if the sufficiency of christ is more of a suggestion than how you actually live your life then your foundation will crumble because in those dark moments, in those really hard moments, in those circumstances, in those times that you don't want to talk about, how you respond to them says something about what you believe about God. It is the sufficiency of Christ that enables us to persevere in our faith. So as we conclude... The Apostle Paul walks us from the supremacy of Christ all the way down to the suffering of Christ for sinners. Our lives should be Christ-centered. The supremacy of Christ not only assures us of the sufficiency of Christ, but inspires us to praise and proclaim His majesty. Here's the concern among Christians, and this may be you. Too many Christians praise and proclaim politics, policies, individualism, human rights, things they don't understand. They complain amidst difficult circumstances, and some of those are good, and some of those are necessary. However, when our lives are flooded by those praises concerning politics or individualism or other things outside of Christ, we are actually proclaiming that God in Christ is not sufficient. We are proclaiming that his supremacy is a suggestion. 
And then there are Christians on the other side who find themselves to be morally superior over those. And they lack thanksgiving when God blesses them. They overlook the supremacy of Christ, unlike what Paul does in this section. They overlook the supremacy of Christ because they already know it. And there are other passages that are just way more cool and way more theologically dense. They judge others for not knowing the meaning of firstborn, and in reality, their hearts are distant from the Lord, and in their theology, the irony is that Christ is not sufficient. And both lack praise. Both lack thanksgiving because they're praising a different God, not the God of the Bible. Here's my hope through this hymn, through this poem, through this proclamation of the supremacy of Christ, that it would lead us to be Christ-centered, that it would lead us to praise him, that it would lead us to rely on him, to live for his glory, to be filled with hope that in everything he might have supremacy. Christian, how do you perceive Christ? Is he supreme and sufficient for you in all things? Is praise purely intellectual? Is praise merely casual and distracted? Is there more complaint than confession? Confess your sin this morning. Turn and look to the Lord Jesus. Praise his name for who he is and what he has done for you. He has made peace between you and God through the blood of his cross. And if you don't know Jesus, you are riddled with idols and perception, and yet you do not know God. Turn and look to Christ so that you would know God. He sent Christ to walk the life we cannot live and to die the death that we deserve so that we might be a new creation in him. Christ pardons every sinner who turns to him in faith and repentance. Church, the supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. Let us praise his name this morning. Let's pray. Lord, receive us in repentance. Save us from temptation. Grant us pure thoughts. Grant us tears of repentance. Remembrance of Christ's work for us. Peace that we have been given, that has been brought to us 
through him. Grant us the mindfulness to confess our sin right now. Grant us humility, praise, obedience, thanksgiving, and gentleness. Implant your will in our heart and in our soul. Shield us from the things that are not of you. We are filled in you simply because of Christ. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Amen.